Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the the mitzvah of tshuva, so-called repentance, or more accurately, return to purity, work of self-correction. That is the that is the inner work of this time of year. We went through the details halakhically of the various categories. And last week we tried to look at the something beneath the surface of the mitzvah, something of the spiritual mechanism. Let's see if we can look at a new angle this week, which I hope will give us a, a deeper insight into a particular facet of Rosh Hashanah. Let's see if we can look at this particular angle and uh, understand something fundamental. In the laws of tshuva, in the laws of repentance, the Rambam, whose uh, whose material, whose uh, exposition of the subject we we used in the uh, over the last few weeks to study the mitzvah discusses the laws of tshuva. First of all, you have to bear in mind that this work of the Rambam's the Mishnah Torah is a halachic work. It's not philosophical. It means this is a compendium, this compilation of halacha. This is the first, perhaps, code of Jewish law. The definitive code of Jewish law follows this almost exactly. And he puts together here the halachic issues that, in other words, the, the practical issues of Jewish law that one needs in order to live. When it comes to philosophy or mystical wisdom, the Rambam wrote other works. He wrote Arabic works for the, for the Jews of his day, who's, for whom that was the spoken language. This work is not philosophical, it's halachic. And in the laws of Teshuvah, the laws of repentance, which the Rambam goes through very plainly, in the first chapter he goes through the the details of the obligation. In the second, he deals with the definition of a Balchuva, what it means to have achieved purity, what the test, the touchstone, if you like, what is the yardstick, how you assess that, in terms of having come clean and left behind any negative behavior. Discusses that. In the third one, he talks about the spiritual balance. That means Chuva really is a method of going back in time, as it were, and undoing negative actions and their consequences in the past. <clears throat> and in terms of that he discusses the spiritual accounting he mentions Rosh Hashanah he mentions blowing of the shofar and he says that the hint in the sound of the shofar is to awake those people who sleep like a the call of a trumpet that is designed to wake one who is in danger and yet asleep. Talks about that. Then he goes into an accounting of the categories of sins that a person can do that are so serious that they cause a loss of one's spiritual existence entirely. In other words, as opposed to other various transgressions in the Torah. This particular list is a list of those that are so 
let's say they offend the spiritual vital organs in such a way that one who transgresses these, unlike any other transgression in the Torah, unless a person does tshuva, has cut himself or herself off from spirituality entirely, <coughs> from life entirely. Of course, this is halachic, you need to know this. These are the things to correct first, these are things to avoid most strenuously, he discusses them in detail. In the fourth chapter, he goes through the things that hinder the process of tshuva. There are 24 categories, the Ramam says, that prevent or make tshuva very difficult. There are certain things that are harder to undo. Not necessarily more serious. Some of them happen to be more serious. Some are more lenient. But what's unique about this category, these 24 things, is that they make the process of self-correction, these are particularly difficult. And then when he gets to the fifth chapter, he starts talking about an entirely different subject. Entirely different subject. He starts talking about free will. What is, the, what is the discussion of the so just, first appearances? appears to be the philosophical nature of the, the faculty of free will. What does it have to do? Why is this the place? First of all, why is it halachic as opposed to philosophical? And what is it doing in this section of law? Then he develops it further. In the sixth chapter, he deals with a famous problem of predestination and free will, the conflict between divine foreknowledge, which would seem to obliterate all free will, and yet we have free will, deals with that, deals with the contradiction. And then he goes back to tshuva, the kind of tshuva a person has to do before dying, and so forth and so on. Each of them, of course, raises their own issues. But what is free will? What's the, what's the organic connection between free will in depth, and the discussion that he goes through here, and Tshuva, and more specifically Rosh Hashanah. Let's see if we can do a little work tonight, put our heads into this, and think it through, and see if we can tie together the issue of free will and its meaning, and Rosh Hashanah. In terms of particularly the application, what should we be doing? Rosh Hashanah, we don't do Tshuva, right? We don't do Teshuvah in Rosh Hashanah. That we do now, beforehand, we do it in the ten days afterwards. Yom Kippur is a day spent entirely in the act of Tshuva. But on Rosh Hashanah we don't do Tshuva. On Rosh Hashanah we speak only about Hashem. Tshuva means I'm working myself out. Tshuva means I've done this, I've done that wrong, I wish to eradicate it, eliminate it from my consciousness and from my, from my being. It's very much a... I mean, the, 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 at least the practicality, the beginning is at least, certainly focused on self. Rosh Hashanah we don't think about self at all. Not at all, even though there's a judgment on Rosh Hashanah. That means what will be for the next year, life or death, and all the details of life are being decided on Rosh Hashanah. And yet, although you stand in the dock, as it were, and your case is being heard, you say not a single word in self-expiation or justification. All you talk about is the judge who's handling this case right now. You don't talk about yourself at all. In fact, it's well known that the later additions to the Shemones with Amidah, Kasveinu Lechaim, so, we say, write us in the book of life, remember us for life. Those are very late additions. They are not part of the original prayer. They were added uh, probably a thousand years later. They are not essential. If you leave them out, you do not have to repeat. You don't have to go back. And those who say that those words should be said are careful to point out that even then you don't mean yourself. For example, if you look carefully, you'll see it says, Kasvenu 
Yeah, Sefer Achaim, write us in the Book of Life, Lemancha Elokim Chaim, for you, not for us. That means I want to be written in the Book of Life, but not because I want that. I want to be written in the Book of Life so that I can continue reflecting here and projecting what you are here. But even that, when I mention myself, and it's very, very rare, it's only those very few occasions in those editions that we do it, even then the focus is only that I should be a clear lens for projecting something that transcends me. We don't do Tshuva Rosh Hashanah. What does free will have to do with the work of Rosh Hashanah? What, what is it that we're about to do on this, these two days? And, and if your motivation is not yet pure, in other words, if you if you're naturally motivated by the question of how you can be vindicated in judgment, purely selfishly, then this discussion is even more important. Or, it's yet important. It means, even if you're starting out by the, the, self, the vested interest, how can I survive this judgment and live for the next year? Me, my family. Then the work is essential, even though it's not the work of Chiba. It's not the appeal in the court, or the justification of my position. It's entirely different work. And although I don't mention myself at all, I mention only my source, and I focus only on the source, but if you want to look at it selfishly, that's the only hope you have. Let's look at, let's look at this issue of free will and see if we can tie it in. The Rama's language is like this. I'll read you a couple of lines to introduce it. It says, Free will is given, permission is given to each human being. This is not Jews, by the way. This is not Jews. He's talking here about, about human beings. People. He says, called by Olam, all the world is judged, every human being, every city, every nation. Rosh Hashanah's in as much as you're human. Apart from the Jewish issue. Rosh Hashanah's Adam Nasuna. Free will is given to each human being. If he wants to bend himself to the way of good, and to be righteous, you have permission, it's in your hand. You want to move yourself into a bad road, be an evil individual, permission is given, it's in your hand. And where do we know this from in the Torah? How do we know? Where do you know that you have free will? Free will is a challenge, maybe you don't have free will. There's a prevalent idea in the scientific mode today that in fact you are programmed. Your output is simply the result of your inputs, your instincts, your biochemistry, your, your conditioning. How do you know you have free will? So the Torah says so. It's not the only way of knowing, but the Torah says so. Where does the Torah say so? We have studied many times together the notion that the essence of a subject, of course, is where the Torah talks about it. But the inner essence of a subject is always located in the time when the Torah talks about it for the first, yeah, the first time the Torah mentions something. We've shared this idea together. The first time the Torah mentions something is where the essence of that subject lies. And the logic is obvious. The Torah is an unfolding process. <coughs> like the conception of a child and its, its, its fetal development. The, the initial fusing of the genes contains the totality of the child. After that, the pregnancy and embryological development is critical, but not as critical as the first moment. And as the process unfolds or rolls on, it becomes less and less potent. The first moment contains everything. Of course, Rosh Hashanah is the first moment of the year, and that's why it's critical. Rosh Hashanah is the day when the genes of the year are being focused. If the genes for a child fuse in such a way that blue eyes are coded for, the child will have blue eyes. That cannot be changed later. To change that later needs grotesque surgery. 
Rosh Hashanah is where the genes of the year are fused. That means they're swimming into focus. Now, the way you look on Rosh Hashanah is the way you will look through the rest of the year. You need very gross and crude surgery. You make changes later. That's the nature. That's why it's a super critical day. The closer to the beginning of the Torah, the more potent and compressed is the message. And in fact, anyone who tracks Torah subjects and knows how to learn up these issues always has that. It should be an ingrained habit. To seek, when, when looking up or working out, understanding any Torah subject, to seek where is the first time the Torah mentions this thing. And of course, the ultimate is to find where the Torah mentions it, not only the first time, but specifically in the six days of creation. Because in the six days of creation, the entire reality was created. And therefore, just like the entire body of the child is coded for in that first moment, so in the first day, the six days of creation, no issue can arise in the world throughout history, but that it must be coded for in those six days. And therefore, to really do your work well in Torah, to understand the subject deeply, you track where's the first time it's mentioned, and where's it mentioned specifically in the first six days of creation. Free will is the center of the human being. And therefore, it must be mentioned, yet you'd be very surprised if it weren't mentioned, in the very first moments of the creation of human consciousness. Who shekasu, with that introduction, who shekasu b'tarit, this is what is written in the Torah, Behold, the human being is like one of us. We're talking here about Hashem, God Himself speaking, who is the one and who is us, that needs discussion. But divine, He's like a divine being. Ladas tevarat, to know good and evil. Kloima, says the Rama, that means, that is to say, Hein min shel odom, this species called man, min, this, this form of, of life called man, not Jews, man, is single in the world. There's no other creature ever created who's similar in this respect. The human being is the only creation who has free will. The only points of freedom in the entire universe are its point of origin, the creator himself, and human beings. Nothing above us and nothing below. No angel has free will, in practice, there is a discussion about the free will of an angel. But in practical terms, angels don't have free will. None of the cosmic structures have free will. No planet and no... Even in high realms where the Rambam says there is consciousness, but there's no free will. And below us, there's no free will. No cockroach ever does what it's not supposed to do. No bacterium ever does what it's not supposed to do. The only creature in creation who ever does what he's not supposed to do is you and me. Above us, there's no freedom, and below us, there's no freedom. And he says that quite clearly. There's no other species of being who is similar to human being in this. In this facet. Other species are very similar to us. Other facets. They have bodies like us. The human body is no different than biologically in its biological tissue than, than, than any creature. There's no question about that. But in terms of the gift of free will, we're unique. Listen to this. What is the defining amazing thing? What is the defining nature what is the defining characteristic of the nature of free will that we have that makes us different than anything else that's created? Amazing thing. That this creature called man, <coughs> man and woman, <coughs> from himself, in his consciousness and his thought, knows good and evil. The Ramam doesn't say that humans have free will because God tells you you're free. The Raman says that you intrinsically know the difference between good and bad. It's an amazing thing, that. You don't need to be educated to know that you have free will. You might need to be educated to unlearn what they've taught you that's false. That's true. 
It's true. They've taught you that you're a hapless gorilla. And so you do what you do. That's what they've told you. And of course you can discover that they're wrong from within yourself. Obviously. So a human being can do whatever he wants. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can stop you doing good or bad. Your actions can be forced. But the good or bad in them cannot be forced. And he makes it very clear. I'll just read you a couple more words to make the point absolutely clear. Do not make an error in your thinking. This thing. Fools of the non-Jews. And most of the idiots of Jewish idiots, basically. A golem, a golem means somebody who is raw, pure raw material. Right? That, that is not a compliment. A golem means somebody who is, the, the, the no work has been done. Pure raw material. Jewish or non-Jewish. What is this mistake? That God decrees on a person, at the beginning of his creation, that he will be righteous or evil. This is not true. Every human being on earth can be as righteous as Moshe, as Moses. Or or, or as evil as the blackest character. Or Zari. He can be wise or foolish. He means morally. Or kind or cruel. V'chein shaykolades. And similarly, all other attributes of character that define goodness and badness. Nobody can force you in that department. You, you are, it is decreed, whether you're intelligent or not. Born intelligent, gifted intellectually, born good-looking, or less than good-looking, is no free choice. Having a particular nature that tends to certain tastes is no free will. The tools, you're not free to choose the tools. <coughs> but how you use those tools to move towards good or evil, that is entirely free. When the Rambam says that human beings know good or bad intrinsically, that's also a surprising thing. The nature is, the natural response is, that good or bad surely is defined externally. Surely. Surely what's good is what God says is good. And surely what's bad is what He says is bad. And the Raman says it's not like that. Understand this deeply, it's an amazing thing. It means that goodness and badness, good and evil, morality and immorality, are built into our consciousness. Of course they built in as a reflection of the source. But you have possession of that. A remarkable thing. Tremendously empowering idea. How far does it go? It's a lengthy discussion in its own right. How far does it go, this notion that you know good and evil intrinsically? How far does it go? It goes so far that your own inner knowledge of good and evil, under the right circumstances, can be used to stand up and argue with the Creator Himself. The classic source. The classic source for that is that when Hashem, when God, is about to wipe out the city of Sodom, and He tells His trusted servant Abraham, Avram Avinu, that He's going to wipe out the city because their level of immorality has now passed the red line that justifies, yeah, that makes continued existence impossible, 
when he announces, we're talking here about God, not a human judge. We're talking about Hashem himself. That is the definition of reality. He tells Avram Avinu that he's going to wipe out Stoim. And Avram stands up and says, Hashefet kol lo Mishpat. Do you understand the statement? Will the judge of the whole world not do justice? A human being stands up and argues tonight. He stands up and says, but that's not right. Just one second, one moment. Who, who are you arguing with? Hashem himself, God himself has said that I'm now about to wipe out this city. God is the definition of what is right. Even if to you it looks heinous, but he is reality. And he announces that this city is about to be destroyed. And a human being stands up and says, but that's not right, it's immoral. But what's even more surprising is God agrees. And he enters a negotiation. What is going on? So Avraham says, look, it's not good and it won't look right and it's immoral and it's not just. How about if I find you 50 righteous people? And God says, okay, you're right. How about 45? He says, I said, fine. There's a deep subject, needs full discussion. But what you see beginning here, you see a glimpse at least, of the notion that right and wrong, and your connection to right and wrong, isn't only because it's defined that way, because God says this is right. You have coded into your consciousness a notion of right and wrong to the extent that when you're faced with an objective definition, no less than God Himself speaking to you, you can trust that in a... Of course you can trust it when you're objective. You can trust it when you're an objectified individual. When you become crystal clear, you rebel that rings, that resonates... Yes, w- w- when you're at that level of clarity that he was, you can speak that way. If not, there's no telling whether it's which part of you speaking. When you start to argue with reality, there's no question. But theoretically, at least. And of course, we're held accountable for that. On Rosh Hashanah, whenever it is, you're held accountable for that. You can't say, well, I didn't know this detail or that detail. I was told this, I was told that. No, there's a level of inner knowledge of your own knowledge of good and bad and what's moral and what's not. In fact, some of the sources, the Hasidic sources, say that before you do an action that's doubtful, one of the important things you should take into account is, it's a very, it's a very subtle point and very hard to put into words and easily misunderstood. But, before you make an action in the world, you should pause for a moment and hear what your heart says. You know, when King David was about to do an action, which was fully justified, Fully justified. Every halachic reason it was in fact saving a life. It was all sorts of... But there was something about it that turned out to be a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a degree that was slightly offline. And the, the Tanakh puts it, says, Vayach leiv David oiso. David's heart smote him. There, there's sometimes you're about to do an action. Very hard to put this into words. You're about to do something. And it's fully justified. You've argued it through and you've rationalized it. Usually, by the way, if you have to rationalize it many times, it's a sign that it's very wrong. <laughs> by, the time you've, you've, by the time you've figured out what a big mitzvah this thing is, <laughs> it's probably a reliable... But nevertheless, once you've done it, you've worked it all out, you're going to go do this thing. And then you feel inside and it's very slight up. Something inside. And we are experts at ignoring that. Experts. But a sensitive individual doesn't ignore that. When you're about to do something that's questionable, and there's a little thump inside, there's some, as you move in one direction, there's some part of you that thumps backward, the other direction. 
It's an essential element of spiritual sensitivity to pause and understand what that thing is. Because there's a, there's a call it conscience, call it uh, spiritual source, call it, there's something that, where does that come from? It's not something that's worked through in the logical process. There's something that's coded in that is so powerful that it's a, it's a, it's a measure of truth. Where is the source of that? What does that thing mean? So let's see if we can try and put our finger on it a bit more closely and then see if we can understand what Rosh Hashanah has to do with this, this point. The faculty of human free will. Let's talk about that. What we call Bechira, free choice. The place where that is located, right? Stay with me carefully. Let's try and give it a form and let's try and think it through. What we're striving for today is to understand the subject is very difficult. The subject has a root which is literally impossible to understand. <coughs> Logic. But it has to be, it has to be assimilated. But let's try and carefully build it until we get to the point where the words become, become inadequate. If you want to know where the faculty of free will lies, and you make a picture of the mind, if you make a picture of consciousness, if you could do that, right, it should be no surprise that that picture would look like the body. If you could, if you could draw a spiritual picture of the inner being, it would look exactly the same as all cosmic structures are. The human body. Of course, it's not that the mind looks like the body. It's the body looks like the mind. Because the external physical reality is an external projection of the inner core. But that would be the picture. And if you want to know in that model of a human being where free will is located, it's here. It's in this place where a child's skull is open. Where a child's skull is open when it's born. You know, you can feel the brain of a baby pulsate. There's a connection. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a connection to source when a child's born. It has not yet closed. There's no bony obstruction there. And as you grow and become further brought down into physicality, and you lose that connection that the fetus has, the unborn child has a cosmic connection, knows the whole Torah, has a light lit above its head. You know where the light is lit? Exactly there, and it shines in. Where do you think the light shines? An unborn child in the womb. It says, the Gemara says, there's a light lit above his head. Where that light he sees from one end of the world to the other. A light on your head doesn't... When you wish to see something, you don't shine a light on your head. You shine it on the thing. If you want to show somebody the world from one end to the other, you illuminate the world. You don't shine a light on the head. That, if anything, that would be counterproductive. But what's being said here spiritually is that what the child sees is in his head. The light is shining into that place that is open where the light can go in. When a child's born in the world, the bone starts to grow and covers that. Do you know what, while we're on the subject... Know what the Ramam says about that? Ramam says that if you if you if you if you sin, you do things you shouldn't do. Listen to this. The Ram talks about how the judgment Rosh Hashanah goes, how many how the sins are calculated against the mitzvahs, and how the balance goes, and how you get a certain credit balance to start with. Give you a chance. Talks about. It. 
and how the calculation of your sins goes, yeah, there are three, the first three are basically given on credit under certain circumstances. We have to discuss this more fully. And then he says like this, Habenonim, and those intermediate individuals whose balance, whose judgment hangs in the balance, Im listen to this amazing statement. If a human being is judged on Rosh Hashanah, and it turns out that he's exactly 50-50, imagine a person comes up with an exactly 50-50 score. 50% of his actions and his output has been spiritually positive. 50%, you have to discuss what this calculation means, but 50% is spiritually negative, then he is hanging in the balance. Says the Rambam, if in the 50% of negativity, that he did not put on tefillin, this man did not wear tefillin, may oilam ever, this individual is judged entirely negative. Doesn't lose a share in the world to come. But, you hear what Raman telling you? That if you have 50-50 exactly, all the mitzvahs count against all the Averis. But even if it's 50-50, but one of the negative elements happens to be the sin of omission of ever putting on tefillin, then the balance falls off negative. What suddenly tefillin? Why tefillin? Not murder, not... The concept here is that tefillin, the mitzvah of tefillin, the Ramah says a man who's never put on tefillin. A man who has never put on tefillin. You should put them on every day. In Torah times, in Gemara times, you used to wear them all day. Today we're not able to wear them all day. To wear tefillin, you have to be clean. To wear tefillin, your mind has to be clean. First of all, your body has to be scrupulous and meticulous. You have meticulously clean. You can't afford to fall asleep with tefillin. But not only that, your mind has to be clean to wear tefillin. Today we put them on for shachris, and we take them on right afterwards. Why? Because your mind is certainly clean when you're davening shachris, isn't it? I mean, if it's not then, when is when when yeah, when then? So during the time when you're supposed to be speaking to Hashem, but then take them off quickly after that. Who's capable of wearing them all day and that level? But why tefillin? Because tefillin reopens that connection. When you've grown up and the bone has closed and you've lost your connection, no light shining in anymore. Tefillin opens the connection. That's what it does. Other myth, it's unique about this mitzvah. <coughs> in the Kabbalistic literature, <coughs> tefillin is called Bekiyas Hamoichin. That means the bursting out of the brain. You know what that means? That the brain, the inner, the moichin is not just brain. It means the power of mind. It means that spiritual source. It bursts forth through the bone. So a person who's never done that, <coughs> of course, women. Women want. Women do not wear tefillin, and the the reason here is because they never lose that connection. They never lose that spiritual connection. An unpleasant subject to dwell on, but. Uh, <laughs> The point is that those of us who need them... Yeah. What's the concept? The concept is that this place of source, as it were, we're not talking physically, we're talking a, a physical representation, is filling on the head. But in the spiritual source, you're talking about a thing called meichin, that means the source of consciousness, the source of who you are, in essence. That is connected to something beyond the self. The physical representation is a Jewish man with filling on. Do you know where you have to wear your filling? Do you know where on the head you should put them? People walk around with their tefillin over here. It's completely wrong. Completely wrong. 
You have to wear your tefillin, says Rashi, where a child's skull is open. They have to be on that part of the skull exactly which was once open. Above here, kosher tefillin. This place here, this root of the being, that is the source, that is where the faculty of free will is. Let's understand that. Let's understand that. The root of who you are in your, in your consciousness is a thing called desire. That's called Rotsoin. We've discussed this in other contexts before, but let's try to understand at least, at least a brief, in a brief sketch what is, being, what is, what is meant here. Desire we don't mean the desire to have. We mean the desire, desire in the sense of volition or will. That means the outflow, the, begin, the word ratzon in Hebrew, which means desire, the root of the word is ratz. Ratz in Hebrew indicates the beginning of movement, an outflow of movement. In fact, the word ratzon in Hebrew has the same numerical equivalent, the same gematria, as the word makor, which means a source. This is the source. In fact, Shmoya, Hashem's name, has the same numerical equivalent, being the ultimate source. Desire means, Ratzon means, the will of volition that is the point of origin of any meaningful activity. Before you can do anything in the world, you must will that thing. If the action you wish to do, or the words you wish to say, are meaningful, if they're not just a jerk of reflex, then they have to begin with an intention. There has to be an intentionality. There has to be, that, there has to be a moment of flashing in what in the Kabbalistic writing is called Yesh Me'ayin, something from nothing. There has to be the origination of a spark of volition that wasn't there before. That is called will or rotsa. That is the origin. From there on in it becomes mechanical. In fact, the, the, the truth is that the only point of an action that is meaningful is that point. Because after you have developed the rotsa and the desire, after you've formulated the desire, yet I wish to give you a gift and show my love for you. So as soon as I originate that desire, the rest is mechanical. After it becomes brain electrical activity, and it becomes nerve impulses and muscle contractions and objects moving through space, it's pure mechanics. A machine can do that. An animal can do that, probably better than you. The meaning of the gift that I give you is entirely located in the revelation of the... All that the action does is reveal to you what I felt about you and how I decided, and that's what's meaningful. Yeah, the rest of it is only an external, it's just a, a printout on a screen. The object of the gift is not, or the hand that passes it is a hand made of animal tissue, one day disintegrate. Even the tissue of the brain, it's a physical substance. The meaning of the gift, the entire meaning of the gift, is that indefinable, it's that space between where your head is and where your tefillin are. No, a space that you can put no electrode into. You can't measure that. That's called yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. It's a great mysterious, it's a great mystery that. How does the physical material of the brain make connection with something that is purely spiritual? How does that happen? That's where this thing is. And that's where your free will is located. And what's unique about this thing called Rotson is that it has no explanation. Now, now, this is where it gets difficult. Listen, listen carefully, stay with me. Why you want what you want? Why you want that thing at root that you wish? Why that volition is there? Why the something flashes in from the nothing has no explanation? That doesn't mean it's arbitrary. That means that's who you are. 
Let, let, let's try to get this as clear as we can. This is worth tremendous effort. There's nothing more important than this. It goes against the grain of Western education and of scientific thinking because it transcends science. It's hard for us to learn. Let's approach it like this. The definition of a source is that it has no prior source. The definition of a first cause is that there's no cause that causes it. Otherwise, that would be the first cause. If you can call a thing a source, then you are saying that it's illegitimate to look for something that caused it. Because then this would not be the source. So if I say that this thing called rotten, if it's a true rotten, that means if it's a real point of origin, and it can be numerically equated, if it has the same, if its equivalence is measured as the word source, Makar, then you can't go looking, you can't go and look within the system for what caused it. Which means you're dealing with a miraculous thing, you're dealing with a mystical thing, something that is because it is, and not because something else caused it. It does not follow, it begins. Can you see, can you see that if it were not for this, you wouldn't have free will? If your point of origin were always traceable to another point, then anything that you ever did would always be the result of something that had caused it. Are we getting somewhere? Free will only exists because there's a faculty that you have for originating something that's not caused by anything else. A real free will action, you can't say he did it because, then you're denying his free will. Why did he murder that individual or perform that heroic act? Ah, it's because of how they brought him up. Ah, so he wasn't guilty. It was his mother. Or his grandmother. Or the movies or the... You have to say, he did it because he did it. And that doesn't make sense. There must be a cause. Well, if there is a cause other than him, other than you, then you're denying free will. Then go blame the cause. Is the point clear? But that's a marvelous thing. What do you mean something that is there because it is? It has no priest. That's who you are. No animal has that. An animal is only a feedback loop. An animal is only a reflex activity. A machine is only what's coded into it. The only point of freedom. What is Hashem? What is God? He is the point of origin. He doesn't have a source. He is because He is. Everything else is because of Him. The only thing that mirrors that in the world is you. Many sources say, you can look it up in the beginning of the Meshach for example, many sources say, what's called Salem al-Kim, that means that the human being is created in the image of God. What do you mean in the image of God? The shape of your nose? The look of your face? What does it mean? That's also, tr- also true, by the way. But the deep source of Salem al-Kim is your free will. Where you resemble him is that you are free. The only thing in the universe, or outside the universe, yeah, is his free will. Nothing causes him to do anything. He does it in and of himself. What we say, within himself. And the only thing that's like that in the world is you. You do the things that you do that are acts of free will. Most of what you do is not free. The vast majority of your actions are not, are not free. But the things that you do that are free, like Ramam says, you turn yourself onto a good way or a bad way. No matter what your circumstances. That is no cause for other than you. This is such an empowering message in a society that teaches that you're not responsible. Or they hold you responsible where it's convenient and they say you're not where it's not good. The message here is that you are entirely responsible. Because you're not caused by anything else. Yet. The meaningful actions, not whether you're intelligent or good looking. The, the meaningful actions, whether you're good or bad. Which is what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Which is what you're here for. Uh, 
Now, let's take it a step further. Can you see the importance of this? No? Is external causation irrelevant? Obviously not. How do we fit that in? Let's say a person has external causation. Let's say a person does an immoral act, and you can quite plainly see that their background or their inputs are relevant. What about that? What about a person who's brought up with a very immoral circumstances? What a person, what about a person with a with a, with a problem, with a, with who who has a problem? Let's call it an organic problem, a genuine problem, and they behave in accordance with that issue or problem. I'm talking about somebody who's deranged, who's psychotically detached from reality. Are not external causes relevant? Stay with me carefully. Again, this is one of the most classic issues in Jewish thinking. The classic source for it is Rav Dessler. And I'll, I'll try and explain very briefly what he says. Again, we've discussed this fully in, our, in, an, in another context, but just let's try and extract what we need. Rav Dessler says the following thing. It's a, it's, it's a most classic exposition, and it's something to have in front of one's eyes always. Free will operates only at a particular point that is called Nekuda Sabahira. You are only free at a particular point. That means on a scale of moral issues, or in a scale of morality in any particular dimension of your life, you are free only at a particular point. Things above that point, you are not free because you haven't risen to that point yet. And therefore you are guaranteed, as it were, almost guaranteed, to do those things wrong. And as it were, you are not guilty. Things beneath the point of free will, you are always doing right, and it's not really your credit, because you are above that. That's got nothing to do with free will. Those are out of the range, out of the zone of where your free will is, is the point. If we need an analogy, yes, if you need an analogy, then let me, let's, yeah, if you play tennis, if you play tennis, you can only be meaningfully said to be playing tennis against somebody whose skills are comparable to yours. A little above, a little below. That's playing the game. If you march out onto the court and challenge a unsteady three-year-old to a game of tennis, and you manage to win, <laughs> they would not be called. You wouldn't call. You wouldn't go home and tell your mother that you you won. You know. You. On the other hand, if you play the world champion, and during the entire match you never see the ball once, <laughs> right? It would be inaccurate to say you lost. You didn't lose, you didn't play. <laughs> is the point clear? That which is beneath you and you're successful is not really... That's not free will. The fact that you don't descend to some horrific level of brutality and violence does not make you moral. Right? You're above that. You would be second at the thought. And the fact that you haven't risen yet to some sophisticated and, and, and fine, refined area of morality, of conscious, of control... Thought control or word control, the fact that you don't do that, it's, you don't even understand what that issue is yet. You have no conception of the refinement required at that level. Where you are free and where you meaningfully grow, where you meaningfully struggle and develop, is in the range, in any particular dimension of your life, where you are meaningfully grappling. That's called free will. Where are you pitched on the scale of free will? Where is your Nukudas Abakhira? Where do you find yourself on the scale of free will? Wherever you find yourself may well not be your fault. It may not be your fault. Let's say you were brought up in decent circumstances. You were brought up well, 
if your parents taught you about moral integrity and intellectual honesty and they, they were truthful people and they and you brought up with that sense of yeah. and it's not your habit to, 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 to mug frail little old ladies on the street you know for a living it's not your habit is that an achievement? it's your parents achievement not yours there's no credit there it's not in the realm of your free will you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't steal. When you say, incidentally, on Yom Kippur, you say, Gazalnu, we stole. What do you mean? Understand this well. You say, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, we were treacherous, we stole. Right? Etc., etc. The whole list of crimes. One person said to me today, I can't say those. I haven't done those things. The man said to me, I can't do that. What is this confession? Murder, and adultery, and sexual immorality, and, and theft, and robbery, and so forth. What do you want from me? There was an individual who tried that on the Rambam once. A man went to the Rambam and he said, Rabbi, I can't say these things. It would be dishonest. I haven't done any of it. The Rambam showed him how he transgressed every single one. Where? At his level of refinement. What do you think it means when you say, I have not stolen? So you've got the self-righteous image that, you know, when you walk down the main road here, you don't, uh, you see a brick lying on the pavement. You don't pick it up and heave it through the jewelry store window and make off down the road with with the goods. You don't do that. Not often, let's say. So you say, I haven't stolen. That's not what you mean. That's not what you mean. That's not what you mean. There is an individual who should mean that. That's the person who's brought up in the gutter. And, and who knows nothing other than mugging little old ladies. So that's his level of morality, but it's not yours. When you say, I have not, yeah, I've stolen. You're not referring to that. You know what you're referring to? The fact that when you work for someone, you're employed, for, you're employed someone, and you make a private phone call. You make a private call. You're employed by someone. And you call home. You spend five minutes on the telephone. Do you know what a crime that is? First of all, you're making a, a call that he's paying for. And say, secondly, there's five minutes that you're being paid to work that you're not. That is actionable in Jewish law. Now, if you work in an environment where there's a tacit understanding that you can call home, which in probably in most normal work environments an employer understands, and Jewish law recognizes the the custom of the place. So if it's tacitly understood that when you get employed, although the contract doesn't say so, you can call home occasionally, so then that's allowed. How about long distance? Not simple. It's not simple. It's not simple. If you borrow someone's pen or read their book in Jewish law, that's called theft. If you wake someone who's sleeping, you know that? You're walking a little noisy. Your wife stirs, she wakes... That's called stealing. And you know what? You can't pay it back. That's problematic. So what do you mean, I have not stolen? The consideration here wasn't in the first place whether you heave bricks through jewelry store windows. Those of you who don't. (laughs) The consideration was, how quiet were you you when you walked in? And what liberties have you taken? You know, I hate to tell you this, but strictly speaking, if you work for someone, you pay the salary. If you don't work fully, there's an element of, of, of uh, misappropriation there. What's relevant is your point of free will. Now, whose fault is it where you are? Whose credit is it where you are on the level of free will? It may well not be your fault at all. When you wish to blame others and look to external circumstances, you are fully entitled to do so. 
again, the, 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 the fundamental issue is not to confuse the point of free will with the free will itself. You know, one of the ironies, I'll give you an example. One of the ironies we see, very often in South Africa, we used to see this all the time, and I'm sure it happens here, you often have a young person who becomes more religiously knowledgeable, more religiously committed, they, they become more, they start studying, and they become, become what we call a bald sugar. A person who becomes an observant Jew. And sometimes they tend, unfortunately, to look down on their parents. Parents are not observant, and they don't value those things, and they... So now, the person thinks that they are... They've made a break, they've improved themselves spiritually, they're living for ideals. You know what very often is the case? The parents were not observant people. They never learned Torah, and they never observed the technicalities of mitzvahs. But you know what? They brought up their child with a deep sense of intellectual honesty, of being a seeker for the truth, of living with integrity, those good old-fashioned Lithuanian values of being a man and living up to your responsibilities. And it could be that because of that sort of input, the child became a seeker for the truth, and they discovered what they discovered. I'm not sure who gets the credit. I'm not sure where the accounts are really written. Not so simple. Where you start out, if you're brought up in a religious home, observant home, you think you get credit for eating a kosher breakfast? You get any credit. It's just habit. Who gets the credit? It's your parents or your grandparents, maybe, who came to a country that was difficult and that who challenged to make sacrifices and they stood firm. And they get the, every time you eat a kosher breakfast, you do a mitzvah. If you want the credit, you have to do something of your own. The only value that you live is your free will action. To the extent that there are products or outputs of what you were given, that all it does is set the point of free will. If parents bring up a child with miserable, disastrous abuse, and, and the child begins, instead of where they should have, they begin at the bottom of the scale of free will. There's no, no damage to them. There's no damage to them. They don't get judged for that. They get judged according to what they do at that point. What's looked at in Rosh Hashanah is, what did you do with your raw material? Your circumstances, your looks and intelligence and financial background and so forth and so on, and religious education and moral education. The question is, how much of that did you maximize? Why does the Rambam say you can be as righteous as Moses, as Moshe Rabbeinu? He means that Moshe Rabbeinu used 99, achieved 99.9% of his potential. And if you achieve 99.9% of yours, you look like him. The fact that yours looked this big and his looked cosmic, is not, that's not, not, it wasn't his credit. The fact that he was born with that potential, not his credit. And not judge for that. Are you with me? Isn't that obvious? You know why it's not obvious? Because you went to a school. You went to a school where they judged you all on the same standard. That's what they did. They made, yeah, they made a child come home feeling like an idiot because he didn't get the same mark as another child. Do you know what that is? That's not Jewish education. That is, that is annihilation of, of little Jewish children. Do you know that in a, in a truly Jewish school, marks should never be read out in the classroom. You know that? And prizes should never be... If you want a heartbreaking experience, if you ever want to, to be brought, brought to tears, it's a good idea if you want to do this between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You go and visit a junior school prize giving. Go to a scenario where they're giving little seven and eight-year-old children prizes. And what you'll find is, invariably, there's one obnoxious, precocious individual who gets all the prizes. <laughs> and next to him is sitting a little seven-year-old. His heart is breaking because he'd give anything to come up with a prize. He's not going to get one. That's education? That's not Jewish education. Jewish education is that the stress you put on a child is the extreme demand that he should live up to what he's capable of doing. What on earth is it relevant to him what the next child's capable of doing? 
the only relevance is that the teacher and the parent needs to know what is the standard for that age group. They have to know that. Nothing wrong with that. But to make the child feel like he's a failure because he didn't do as well as somebody else? What is it? The judgment on Rosh Hashanah is, and the judgment in the next world is, how do you look compared... You know what you're shown in the next world? You are shown brutally honestly who you are, and right next to that a picture of what you could have been. But that's all you see, no one else. You know that? The Gemara says in the next world, you're entirely alone. Every, every individual in that world has a place of residence on his own. You read, there's uh, other dimensions to this as well. But from one particular perspective, you are entirely alone. Except for the fact that husband and wife, it says. Husband and wife are permanently bonded into one reality. It's good news for some of us. It's problematic for others. <laughs> but apart from that, Apart from that, you're alone. You know what it means to be alone? It means that your judgment is simply being exposed to what you've become and seeing what you could have been. That's all. They don't show you what somebody else has become. What's it going to do with you? So when you educate a child, the teacher should call the child in and say, look, you're a failure. Why? Because you could have done better. And by the way, by that standard, you could call a child who got 99% a failure. Definitely. Definitely. If a child is a 100% child and they get 99, they should be held to account for that. But what sense that, uh, is this? Yeah. Of course, when children are older, our sources indicate, when children are 14, 15, 16, then you can certainly compare them and you can be as unfair as you like. And the reason is, life is unfair. And children have to, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with competition and... Yeah, at that age. But not when they're seven and eight and nine years old where they don't understand that. When a child defines his success and his self-esteem by comparative... Isn't it obvious? Again, the principle is, this is so important, where a person is pitched on the scale of point of free will, has nothing to do with his responsibility. That. But what you do at that point, that's up to you. Is this clear? A person who's brought up mugging little old ladies for a living. Whether he does or doesn't mug little old ladies has got nothing to do with him. It's not his free will. That, that was his starting point in life. But what he does on the next occasion when he's faced with that opportunity, the next time a little old lady hobbles past with her, with her, with her, with her purse, and he decides that instead of killing her, he's only going to crack her skull mildly. <laughs> That's a tremendous moral advance. That's a tremendous act of spiritual greatness for that individual. In ter- uh. And a great righteous individual who's thinking his Torah thoughts and he's wondering how he can put it across to his students in a more sensitive manner while he's under tremendous pressure with responsibility. So his ordeal, he's coming up with another degree of level that he can push himself to. He gets reward for the little old lady that he doesn't mug. When I get up to the next world and Hashem says, Tats, what did you achieve on earth? And I say, Hashem, I never smashed any little old lady's skulls. <laughs> you think he's going to say, hmm, very impressive. He's going to say. <laughs> he knows I, I gave that up a long time ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it can even be a function of serious problems. I think I once shared with you the contact I had with a young woman who 
had a problem of stealing. There's a girl from a wealthy family, <coughs> this intelligent girl. She has a psychoneurotic problem. That when she walks into a supermarket, she takes sweets and puts them in her pocket. The reason I was involved is because she was in court for the tenth time. And the psychiatrist was, was, dealing with the, was asked to testify, the magistrate asked him to testify about whether the girl was sane or not. And this girl is sane, there's no question. Insane means psychiatrically defined as psychotically detached from reality. She's not detached from it. She knows exactly what she's doing. She knows it's wrong. But she has a tremendous compulsion. She has a tremendous compulsion. She derives tremendous pleasure when she puts those sweets in her pocket. She has all the sweets she can possibly eat at home. She has all the money she needs to buy as much as she wants. She has a problem, this girl. And my friend was in big trouble, the psychiatrist, because if he tells the judge, he can't, if he tells the judge the girl's insane, she'll be psychiatrically... But he can't do that. And if he tells the judge that she's sane, she'll go to jail. And she'll probably die. What happens to free will in that situation? The answer is very plain. The fact that this girl has this problem has got nothing to do with her free will. May not have anything to do. It may be genetic, it may be biochemical, it may be functional, it may be because of her background, her family, her mother did something when she was three, her father looked her away. All of the above, none of that. It's all possible. Where's her free will? When she stands in that supermarket and the sweets are there and she decides to put her hand out and take them, she's fully accountable. The fact that you don't is because you don't have that problem. Is the point clear? Her point of free will is there. That's what she's dealing with. But whether she does or doesn't do it is up to her. I once shared with you, I think, the example of a few young men in New York who almost killed a young girl who was brutalized and beat up a young girl who was jogging through Central Park. And what was fascinating about it is that when they were caught... They said they did it for fun. They were apprehended by the police. They said they did it for fun. Okay. Why the case made legal history is because in the courtroom, their defense offered a new line of argument. The line that they took was, they said this, these young men were brought up in the Harlem ghetto in New York, in Upper Manhattan. And they were brought up in the worst of circumstances. They were beaten and abused and abandoned and poverty-stricken and they had the worst possible... And they're brought up in a society where that is what is done. So how can you hold them accountable? Actually, the technicality of the case was the, the legal team tried to invalidate the jury. They said, you can't judge these people. You don't have their background. You, who come from a more decent, refined background, how can you judge these people? But the basic point is, it's a challenging issue. The basic point is that, do you know why you don't mug girls running through the park? Because you weren't brought up that way. So, so, the answer is, the fact that they define fun as beating up a girl in the park, or show their macho, the fact that that is their world and their reality is not their fault. But doing the action is their fault. Beating up somebody where you have enough human intelligence to know that you don't enjoy being beaten to a pulp with a lead pipe, that much you know, then you're accountable for doing it to somebody else. The fact that it's your issue may not... Do you understand the point? Why wouldn't you do that? Because you'd be sick of the thought. Is it your credit that you'd be sick of the thought? Of course not. You were brought up that way. And therefore, the resolution of this problem is very simple in Jewish terms. The point of free will, where that's pitched, has got nothing to do with free will. Very possibly. And often, 
entirely. But what you do at that point of free will, that's who you are. And therefore, at the point of free will, you do what you do because you are free. Nothing to do with your upbringing and your background and your genes and your chemistry. That determines where you operate. But at the point where you operate, that is you. Now we ask the question, and what causes you to make the choice that you make at that point? And the answer is you. You can't blame that on anybody. You can blame your mother for the fact that you have this particular problem. Yes, she's the cause of the problem. But how you handle the problem, whether you succumb or you're victorious, that's you entirely. And what explains whether you're victorious or not? Nothing. That's you. That is who you are. That's what free will means. Don't look for an antecedent cause. That's illegitimate. You're denying free will if you do so. What does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Let's try and close the circle and bring it home. On Rosh Hashanah, you lift yourself to the point, to your point of origin. Chuba means that you go back to the beginning of your consciousness. You go back to the purity, to the original. You go back, you lift yourself to the source of who you are. Chuba means you examine your ultimate desire. You find what it is that moves you, makes you tick, what turns you on. That's who you are. Because what you want at root, the desire that you have that has no reason, is who you are. Incidentally, because the root of the human being reflects the root of the world, just like Hashem is one, so you have one desire that fuels you. You know that? If you want to know who you really are, seek the one underlying desire that has no reason that fuels all that you do. If you haven't done that, you have no idea who you are. If you want to do an exercise before Rosh Hashanah, put yourself in a room on your own, close the door, still your mind, and ask yourself ruthlessly, honestly, what do I really want? And when the answer to that question pops up in your mind, then you'll find that it is not complimentary. It's usually quite humiliating. If you're being honest, it's usually not what you would like to find. And when you find the answer to that question and you know what it is that you want, ask yourself, why do I want that? Why? What motivates that desire you'll find? Well, because if I had that, I could do something else. Okay, good, fair enough. Why do you want that something else? Because if I had that, I could do or be something else. Good, fair enough. But sooner or later you'll get to a point where there's no answer to that question. Why do I want that? It's just who I am. That is who you are. The single underlying desire that fuels all the others, that is who you are. And it may be a very embarrassing exercise. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. Rosh Hashanah is about getting to the root of yourself and connecting it with the root of the world. There's nothing more empowering than that. When you can get up to the source, not the habit patterns that you've got into and the things that you do, because, but when you get to the root of who you are, that one single underlying desire, what is that? What's the reason that that's your desire? Illegitimate question. That's who you are. How do you make a change? Rosh Hashanah is about making a change. You want to merit judgment, a positive judgment? You have to change that. How do you change the root? Excuse me. How do you change the source? If you've gotten up here, how do you climb outside yourself? How do you lift yourself up by your own bootstraps? You can't do that. If you've reached a point in meditation, you've meditated so deeply, this is the work of Tefillah, you've done this on Rosh Hashanah before Rosh Hashanah. You've got, let's say on Rosh Hashanah, you've got to a point in your own consciousness, you've ascended to the point that is who you are at root. This is not something that, that you do, this is who you are. Well, how do you change that? What are you going to say, Hashem, I don't want that, I want something else. You're lying through your teeth. 
You've now discovered that what really makes you tick is the desire to be comfortable and happy and warm and that no one should bother you. That's what you've discovered. You want to curl up in the sun and go to sleep like a dog. That's who you are. There's worse, believe me. There's a lot worse. So now you say, Hashem, I just want to be your slave. God, I just want to, I burn to serve you. You're lying through your teeth. So, so how do you, ch- so what do you do? The answer is nothing. You can't. You can't change your inner desire. You can't change the point of origin. There's no other place to go. There's only one option. You can't change it. But he can. And he guarantees you a new one if you give up this one. That's all you can do. You can't make a new one, but you can give away the one that you have. Do you know what that means? You have to kill yourself. That's destruction of ego. You have to say, Hashem, this is the most precious thing. It's not only precious. It is everything that I am. You know what? Take it and give me a better one. You have to make that desire transparent. That's what the... You have to make it transparent. Instead of being vested there, desperately clinging to that, because that's life itself. You have to say, Hashem, you know what? You know why we read the Arcade of the Binding of Isaac? The killing of a child. <coughs> To have given his own life away would have been a minor achievement. But to give away his manifestation, his continuity, that which he... What does that do with Rosh Hashanah? And we re- this, reminiscent of this is the fact that we blow the shofar, which is the horn of the very sacrifice that was brought in his place. Because on Rosh Hashanah you're supposed to do an Akedah, you're supposed to bind yourself on the altar of your own, your own immolation. That means your own the deepest essence of who you are. You, why do you speak on Rosh Hashanah not about yourself but about Hashem? Only. Because what you're saying is that ultimately I'm in the world not for myself. But I'm here to reflect something greater. I'm here to project and reflect something that transcends me. That's what you're in the world for. But the only way you can do this is by giving up who you are. When you can make that transparent... You see, there's no problem with the the, the the tap, the faucet is open. The question is only where your bucket is. There's no problem with what's waiting to come down. That's guaranteed. It's coming down all the time. It's keeping you alive. Just like the parent is waiting to give the child the absolute best that that child can take. The question is, where's the child? Is there to take it? It's pouring down unlimited fashion. The question is, are you transparent enough for it to shine in? Ravasan always used to say that the world is full of light except where we cast the shadows. That's the trouble. You, you're so busy trying to be the big deal who's shining the light that you keep getting in the way. And so in Rosh Hashanah we go deeper than Tshuva. We don't only work out who we are. We go beyond the self. Can you imagine that? You go to a point where you are totally sacrificed. What becomes of you is yeah, you blend into what he is. Can you imagine such a thing? Of course, the ultimate paradox is that in doing so, you become the greatest thing that you could be. The paradox is you don't disappear. That's where you find yourself. Jewish teaching is not that you become nothing and a nobody and you blend into a universal power of sort of cholent of... uh, (laughs) That's not Jewish teaching. Jewish teaching is that you use all your talents, you use all your personality, you use all your natural motivation. You evince... All of that. It was given to be used, not to be destroyed. The only thing that's destroyed is the personal, childish, vested interest. That's all. You have to understand this deeply. A slave 
You want to be an Eved Hashem? You want to serve him as a slave? A slave is not someone who comes to his master and says, Master, I'm your slave. Push me, pull me. I'm patting your hands. Do what you want with me. That's not a slave. That's just a nuisance. A slave is a person who comes to his master and says, Master, I'm burning with ambition. I'm longing to fulfill myself. I have an uncontrollable desire to use all my gifts and all my talents and enjoy it richly, but I want to do it for you, not for me. That's a slave. In a genuine love between two people, there's no greater personal pleasure. Hear this paradox. In a genuine love between two people, there's no greater personal pleasure than giving yourself entirely. In fact, it's the only way. Because while you utilize the relationship to try and get the other person to do for you, while you keep making those demands, you keep destroying the relationship. The paradox is that when you can learn to give yourself away entirely, which is what love, love genuinely is, not only give yourself entirely, that they become you. That you the, the paradox is that when two people give themselves to each other so entirely that they each disappear into the other and form a unit that is far bigger than the sum of the parts... The ultimate paradox is that's where you discover who you are as an individual. You don't lose yourself. And what do you do when you discover who you are as an individual? You keep it, you put it right back in. Give it away, you give it away again. So if you want to know who you are in Rosh Hashanah, you want to achieve that thing that is you, genuinely, you have to first give it away. You have to get to that point of who you are and be prepared to have that elevated. While you selfishly cling to that because... That's all you are. You are that thing you're clinging to. But if you get on Rosh Hashanah, you can talk not about yourself entirely. All you talk about is Malchus Shemayim. Kabbalah's all Malchus That means there's something larger here. Something infinitely large. And I'm the manifestation of that. I'm the lens through which that shines. So then the lens itself becomes illuminated. You become that. Can you imagine the proportions that you swelled? Of course you're not doing it for that. And therefore, the Rambam talks here about free will under the subject of Chiva, going back to the root of who you are, the root of who you are is where you are ultimately free. It is that point of origin <coughs> that has no explanation. It is def- definitional. That's who you are. Is that mysterious and miraculous thing that isn't mechanically caused by something else. It's the point of origin of the system. The only cause of that is something that's outside of the system. You have to enlarge your system to get there. And Rosh Hashanah is exactly that. Rosh Hashanah is the day of getting to the point of origin and going beyond that point of origin of the world, of the human being, in as much as he's human, let alone Jewish. It's not a day for working on the self in terms of the smallness of my own personal identity. We say all the tefillahs in plural. The first thing we do is we expand to the level of us as a people. When we phrase our tefillahs in plural, we don't speak about Jews, we speak about the whole world. Jews as well, the whole world. And what we want on that day is to go beyond the source. This is the connection. The sound is the sound of the shofar, which goes deeper than words, to the point of origin of sound itself. It's an inarticulate cry, which is just the voice itself speaking, crying. And that's what the day is. So, the work... Here to remember before I wish you all a Ksiva that we should all be written and sealed immediately. The first opportunity, not need to have anything heard on appeal later, is this thing. You're anxious for yourself, 
you have bigger ambitions, you're anxious for world peace, you want things to be resolved. This is the way. The way to do it is to... That oneness that will be revealed here is only when the whole vessel becomes a vessel for that thing, when the lens is polished so that the light can shine in, that will be the resolution of the problem. But our job is to shine the lens, polish the lens. To go out there and start making light shine. Uh, you see that they're trying to do that, and you see that they are not... The record has not been good, yes. Not for the last 5,762 years it hasn't been good. Our job is to polish the lens, that's all. It's to reach that source of consciousness, be able to give it away in a binding that is a sacrifice, and in being able to give that away is the point of being able to find it.